Good day. Devin Townsend here again for the Devin Townsend podcast. I don't even know what edition this is, six or something. Apologies for it taking me so long. This one is about the album's SYL and the album Accelerated Evolution by Devin Townsend Band. So, it's been a month. Where do I even start? I guess a good place for me to start would be to discuss my feelings on doing this podcast and why it's taken me a while to get back to it. I think there's a couple of things that came up. I think first there was a there was an embarrassment that came along from recognizing that I had been as transparent as I feel I need to be regarding these records. There's that. I've been dealing with that sort of sense of um, perceived humiliation for much of my career. And I think there's also uh, a sense that I don't feel particularly comfortable with being, you know, like a spokesperson for much. One of the most irritating aspects of modern life for me has been the proliferance of life coaching, where ultimately at the end of a life coach's manual, the last page I always interpret is saying, in order for you to make money, you need to learn how to act like your life is together so that then you can sell yourself as a coach to other people. I don't think anybody's got their life together. And I'm suspicious of anybody who claims that they do. And this particular period of human development during this quarantine and the coronavirus and all these things forces us to sit with ourselves, I think, in a lot of ways. And that is very productive for me on an artistic level. But the way that that process works for me and has always worked for me is that in order for me to move forward, I need to become aware of some uncomfortable truths. And I think it's very often the case with this process that I don't know what it is that I've uncovered about myself until I'm in the final throes of making an album. But the clues that start to reveal themselves during these periods come in vague ways. And one of the ways that it's starting to appear to me in which this next period of my work is going to be ripe with is an increasing uncomfortableness with me as the fundamental subject matter for what I do. And I think going through these albums with these podcasts and the reason why, to a large degree, 
other than the fact that I did these quarantine concerts that were just inhuman amounts of work, really. I think a lot of the reason why I have strayed away from the enthusiasm that fueled the first few podcasts is just by doing them, I became aware of the fundamental nature of my work, having been so completely to do with me, so completely to do with my own trip, and with almost a naive sense of uh, it being so important that it's worth making monuments about symphonies for metaphors around. And I saw um, I saw a YouTube video the other day of somebody who is working with um, terracotta, working with pottery. And it's always interested me, just I like the idea of, of these little pots and little cups sort of being born from a from a phallus of clay but it also seems really messy <laughs> and i just don't want to get clay everywhere so i've never really uh, imbibed but i do like the idea of it and and a quote from one of these potters that i was deep in a youtube hole with the other day was that what he hopes his work reflects ultimately through his participation in it is the humanity within himself that he shares with others and I can relate to that and I think the ways in which we as creators find that common humanity is oftentimes through exploring these these avenues in our own mind, in our own trip, in our own psyche, that maybe in the immediate sense can be interpreted as being fully self-absorbed. And I think the more that I started doing these these podcasts, the more I started recognizing that well, two things. One, the awareness that for whatever reason I was not cognizant of, that everything in my life has been revolving around my own trip with such a sense of drama and with such a sense of importance that although that wasn't in my mind what my intention was, seeing it objectively feels humiliating on some level. And then secondly, recognizing that for me, the pathway for me to achieve a kind of common humanity throughout the work that I do, and to find ways to express that down to the lyrical content, which is where I'm at right now, which is where it's become apparent to me where my current work uh, lies is trying to express something that's beyond words, is trying to express the right analogies, the right nouns, the right adjectives for that 
connection to something universal with a very limited repertoire of, of words. If you wanted to say, for example, uh, this was a beautiful day. If you had a, a chord playing and you simply said, this was a beautiful day. I think that your voice, your lineage, your history interprets those words through your, your instrument being your voice in ways that can sound very disingenuous. There's some people that could get away with just saying that, but I have a feeling that at this particular stage of my career, at this particular stage of my development, just saying that would come across in a way that is aware of itself, thus taking away the simplicity of that statement. And so that leads me to, okay, well, what is another way of expressing this was a beautiful day? How about I feel that this was a beautiful day? And on that level, there's this sense of um, me in the word I still, or what's another way of looking at it? You seem like you've had a beautiful day. We've had a beautiful day. I feel that at this point, the secondary nature of, of the recognition of, of how much my trip has been involved with myself over these years. Now, I uh, don't quite know how to express that same internal sense of what it is I've been trying to express since the beginning that in the past resulted in infinity and city and Terria and all this. I still am trying to say the same thing. But I realize now that I don't know how to say it right now. And listening to myself and, and going through these last records has made me realize that that's not how I want to say it. And what's also interesting is any sense of humiliation that I feel is not true humiliation. It's just an ego trip. It's me not wanting to be perceived a certain way. Rather than being truly humiliated, having done something that I feel is abhorrent or something that's against my, my ideologies of, you know, whatever form. It wasn't that at all. It's, it's just, I went through that. I meant it, and it wasn't, in hindsight, the way that I now know I need to find a, a path to express it. I have to find a path to express it differently. Words fail me. Words fail me. And instrumental music doesn't interest me. So I started thinking about a bunch of different options, like, okay, well, maybe you write lyrics in a different language. Maybe you make your own language, whatever the case may be. But I ultimately think at that point, I don't know, maybe I just feel that 
Maybe I feel like I know what it is that I want to say, but I'm afraid to say it. That's interesting. And it's not only that I'm afraid to say it, it's that I'm afraid to say it incorrectly. Because it carries a lot of weight to me, emotionally, personally. And to have what my objective is interpreted as me feeling that I am the center of it, that I am the uh, reason is clearly not what I'm meaning to say. This is why when I go back to infinity, I, I think about that and I will say till the end of time that what my objective was at that point was not incorrect. It's just the ego got in the way. Hmm. I also find there's a lot of words in my attempt to explain these things. I just reiterate things over and over and over again. Here I am 15 minutes into this particular podcast and I've said the same thing six times. And I don't feel, I don't feel badly about recognizing that in myself. A lot of times I think my tendency to do so is interpreted as self-deprecation. But it's, in my estimation, just trying to be aware of it so that I can learn the ways in which this is failing or learn the ways in which this is inefficient and then find a new solution for it. The idea of all of this is to try and express something that is profoundly important to me and profoundly beautiful to me, but with a limited repertoire of words and notes and compounded by the fears and the biases and all these things that as a human being I've accumulated. So, as per usual, long story long, here we are now talking about the next in line. After a month of thinking to myself, oh, I, want, I don't want to continue with this. I don't want to continue with this. But I feel it's important for me because I also heard a quote the other day I thought was really interesting in that you're only as sick as your secrets. I thought that was really cool better out than in. And as I'm trying to progress and as I'm trying to wrap my head around this next stage of music for me and all the things that go into it, you know, I think while I'm writing recently, I, I think, I think about writer's block. I get asked about writer's block and, and, um, it's interesting to me how as artists what we typically do is when we feel that we don't have any art in us like you know the feeling as a creator you pick up your guitar you pick up your paintbrush you sit down at your computer to write and nothing comes out and whatever does come out seems like you were never capable of doing great things to begin with and so the natural tendency at that point for creators is to think oh i'm a fraud 
uh, nothing that I've done in the past is worth a shit and I will never be able to create again. That seems to be this tendency with us. And when I get asked about writer's block, which of course I feel, my solutions to it, and this is the one thing I can offer to people who are going through this, which does work for me, is to get the rest of your life in order, to get your creative space organized in ways that benefit you when you finally start to create. I find when I'm writing, there's always this awareness of, man, I wish when I had had that 15 minute break there or two days, a couple of months back where I was doing nothing at all. I wish I had taken that time to solve this little nagging problem that plagues my creative process when I start writing. For example, I have a, this microphone that I use that I dislike the cable dragging from my interface to where I'm sitting. And I keep, th I keep thinking to myself, what you should do is you should put a little eye hook on the back of your desk to keep the cable organized. And you should put a holster of some sort, a plastic container of some sort, by your left hand, so whenever you feel the need or the urge to use your microphone, you reach down and grab the microphone, arm the channel and go. And as inconsequential as it may seem when you are not in the creative flow to have that mildly irritating mic cable in your world, the amount of relief that it provides when you do start writing, which rest assured you will, is hard to quantify. So right now I'm in this gestation period between what I did with Empath and what I'm hoping to do with whatever comes next. And it's the same as it has been since the beginning of my creative process. I feel that the absence of music in me right now and the music that is in me that is just random sporadic ideas is an indicator that I will never write again, that I will never be able to create. And that when I listen to the last things that I've done, I think, how the hell did you do that? Where does that even come from? If I sit to write now, there's nothing. And what I also think is interesting about this is how much this plays into that same addictive mechanism that has been synonymous <clears throat> with my work in my mind since the beginning. And what do I mean by that? Well, here we are in quarantine. I mean, that's a broad term for what's going on, but I'll use it nonetheless. And we're so used to our devices and we're so used to television or, or video games or Pro Tools or making podcasts or being on Twitter or, or posting pictures of our perfect lives on Instagram or finding the right meme to outline this, that in absence of that, when you stop, and you think, okay, well, I can't distract myself anymore. 
and all these other things that maybe sporadically we find are are useful like you get drunk or you get high or you uh pornography or you know you travel or or anything that is at this particular moment in time not really an option and if it is if you do go down that avenue what you tend to find is at the end of it you're just stuck with yourself you haven't gone anywhere you can't escape yourself now that when that happens you think okay well okay so what are we going to do today what do we do shall we write and then i sit down to write and i think okay well what was my motivation for writing before how much of my motivating factors that contributed to the work up to this point has been in acceptance how much has it been in showing it to people and having them be into it and then that validation is ultimately the reason or a motivating factor a big one for creating work and in absence of that and by absence i mean the recognition like i said earlier here like hearing myself talk about these past records in absence of that being a viable reason to create what do you have to say i did some work with a friend's project the other day and it was fantastic music fantastic music and i think okay so what do you have to say over this what is your objective and then i talk to people close to me and they say well clearly you must be angry about things clearly when you watch the news clearly when you think about the injustices happening in the world this makes you angry and i keep thinking it should is it apathy that prevents me from responding to this with the type of vitriol that i have in the past is it just age or is it that i'm just so calloused by it all that i don't care or am i just so overwhelmed by it all that my capacity to care has been muted but none of those things seem to make sense if i really sit with it which i have had the opportunity to do during this period what seems to make more sense is that there's an awareness of a psychological shift within myself within my creative identity that feels that none of those prior reactions that at the time seemed so important to me any of these records seem appropriate now it just seems like doing these things for the sake of it it just doesn't seem like it's a it's a worthy use of time i would prefer to 
meditate than just erratically try to um, participate in an emotion that either I have already experienced and have solved to a certain extent within my own mind or one that's based out of a need to be validated or one that's based out of fear. An interesting thing happened the other day. It was my birthday and the day before I had uh, written on Twitter, okay, I'll do a Twitch thing where we'll talk on Twitch. And then I woke up on my birthday and my first thought was like, oh man, I wish that I hadn't said that I would do that Twitch thing because I forgot that Tuesday was my birthday. And then I spent the first 15 minutes of my day sort of doing the martyr trip, thinking, yeah, well, I said I'd do it. So until all of a sudden I said, you know what, this is within your power just to say no, just to say, hey, I'll be back tomorrow and do this. And so I did. And people said, oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's your birthday. Why wouldn't you do that? But as subtle of a quote-unquote breakthrough as that was for me, it was very important for me to recognize that a lot of this creative identity that I have created for myself has involved me feeling like I have to suffer for other people in order to be accepted feeling like I have to please people. I remember when I broke up the Devon Townsend project about a year and a half, two years ago, there was several weeks of me just feeling so like almost sick about the fact that I have hurt the people in the band whom were dedicated to it and who had provided me friendship and uh, companionship and, and all worked very hard to achieve that we the things that we had achieved. And I remember feeling similar when I had to let go my first manager and leave strapping on the lad. There's this sense of I don't want people to dislike me. But then I realized during that breakup of Devin Townsend Project that I needed to do that. And at that point, it came down to, in a very fundamental way, it's either them or me. And by that I mean, if I continue to do it, my only reason to continue to do this is because I don't want them to suffer. But then I realized that there's also a tendency within myself not to give myself enough credit for the work that I've done, for the amount of it that I carry, and also not giving myself enough credit for how much 
I know I have to offer if I follow those creative inclinations in the way that sometimes forces me to make hard decisions. So as per usual, what I would do is try and find ways out of these situations with the least amount of damage, with the least amount of collateral damage. But there's always going to be damage in a situation like that. And what I had to come to terms with during the breakup of the last band was that creatively, it was not what I wanted to do anymore. And because my creative motivations are fluid and because they are unclear to me during the process and only become clear to me once the music starts to appear, once these periods of creative identity start to coagulate into a, into a real tangible name, color, album. Until that point, I don't know. And so I think that making peace with the fact that that's okay for me was important. But also recognizing that in light of not wanting to repeat mistakes over and over and over again, because I have no desire to hurt people. I also need to be aware of the ways in which these situations that continuously have been appearing to me have a common thread. And then within that thread, how do you avoid making that mistake in the future? An example of that, I love being in a band. I love the idea of being in a band, being part of a gang, you know, having people that you're fighting this, <clears throat> not war, <clears throat> but you're sort of embroiled in a, in a battle together. You're on tour, one for all, all for one. I, I find that romantic. I find it gratifying. But there's things that come along with that that are just not good for me creatively. Being in a democratic environment musically would work for me if the power structure was such that everybody involved with it came into it on equal footing. If I was in a situation like that, I could rationalize a democratic scenario. But if you start a band based on you, your work, your trip, your vision, your name, and then your desire for that democratic social situation becomes forefront in the power structure. It becomes this very strange democratic dictatorship where just because they're friends and just because they're people who you care about, you, or at least I, feel the need to include their opinions. And then after a while, one thing gets pulled into another, an inch becomes a mile. And then you're making compromises 
on the vision. You're making compromises on the the sound, the music, the articulation of the instruments. In ways that although might be cool, that's a process that's much better reserved for an actual band. And this is a good enough preface as any for what happened with Accelerated Evolution. Synchestra. Those two albums were recorded by what was known as the Devon Townsend Band, the DTB. And that occurred because after Teria, I remember Inside Out Records had funded a tour for strapping based on the fact that I think Thomas was hedging his bets that eventually I would be a solo artist, which I am now. So he was correct. But part of that at that time was he was agreed slash coerced into funding a strapping young lad tour that ultimately played a couple of Devin Townsend songs. And we toured with Fear Factory on their Digimortal album. And I remember being in my bunk because Teria had just come out and I was on tour with Strapping and I'm thinking, man, you couldn't just shit or get off the pot. You couldn't say to the Strapping guys, hey, I'm done, I want to pursue this. It's like you didn't have you didn't have the strength to say that. And I think this goes back to people-pleasing, which I ultimately think goes back to low self-esteem, which maybe goes back to childhood sexual experiences. You know, the sense that you're not worth it. And I remember being in the bunk and thinking, Terry just came out, it's a really strong record. There's a lot more fuel in that tank for me than strapping. Yet I was on tour with these guys and I loved being with them. I loved being with Gene. I loved being with Jed. I loved being with Byron. It was fun. They were great guys and it was fun. And I knew that although they were happy to be on tour, they were upset about it as well. I remember we used to play this circle game where we would show each other a sort of like a, a circle with our fingers. And if the other person saw it, then you got to hit them. And it was a big thing. It was like everybody was black and blue. But that was the one time that I remember Gene actually hit me. He gave me the circle and he just gave me a good smack. And I knew that underneath the surface of that was this conversation that's going, come on, dude. And I remember also thinking, why can't you just leave this? And I was like, well, I want to be part of this gang. I want to be part of this thing. But to be fair, underneath that was also a resentment for me. Maybe fueled by an anger at my, myself for not being able to do this. And then I project that onto others. And then I find a convenient peg to hang that resentment on like okay i'm doing that but you're doing this 
seems to be a typical maneuver when you're unwilling or unable to just put your foot down. And my reaction to that was to say, okay, I'll do another strapping record so we can be part of this gang. But I'm also going to make simultaneously an album of what I felt was more Ocean Machine style music. And not only that, I'm going to do it with a group of people who have had no experience other than being in local bands. So I kind of went on this very absent-minded search for local musicians. And I asked Beeve to be involved because we had had these experiences and we're friends and, and having him involved would be at least somebody that I could talk to immediately. And I was at a local music store and the guy working behind the counter, Mike Young, I talked to him. I had bought something that day. We talked for five minutes and I thought he was a cool guy. Found out he played bass. I said, hey, I'm putting together something. Come audition. That was the extent of it. He came and played. He was a good bass player. And I said, I'm also looking for a keyboard player. And he says, well, my brother can play keyboards, Dave Young. And I said, okay, great. Where's he? He also works at the music store. So I met Dave and I said, come play keyboards. And that was the audition process for what ended up being a 10 year relationship between Dave and I. I auditioned two drummers, three drummers. The first guy who did the demos for Storm and Depth Charge and all that was a, a mutual friend of Beeves and mine named Scotty McCarger. And he had done, um, you know, he had worked with Biff Naked and a bunch of Vancouver acts, Age of Electric with Todd Kearns and just people from Vancouver whom we all knew. We all grew up together. Scotty was a good drummer. He was a rock drummer. He wasn't a metal drummer. And he did the first few demos. And then after a couple of weeks of playing together, I think it was clear to both him and I that although it was cool, we were just on different pages. And so without any drama whatsoever, uh, I said, I'm going to look for somebody else. And I auditioned Ryan and one other, one other person. And I remember when Ryan hit the snare, I remember thinking, oh, good, he hits hard. And that's when my decision was made. I was like, okay, you should play. It was as simple as that. And almost underneath the simplicity of those decisions was this desire to show the guys in strapping, I think, that I could do this with other people too, that I didn't need you. And I think one of the lessons that I needed to learn from that was how good of a band strapping was and how what made it such a cool thing for the time was beyond just the technical playing, beyond just the, um, you know, whether or not 
you can do this on your instrument, whether or not you can do this on your instrument. It was, it was this intangible thing that I really enjoyed when we were on tour. That was a lesson that I needed to know. So, fueled by this combination of projections and insecurity and guilt and desire, I committed to doing two records simultaneously. And the reason why I did that was, of course, the management at the time and our, our lawyer and the label, they were convinced that I wasn't going to be capable of doing that, which also provided me a, uh, a, uh, a heck of a motivation to do so, to just be able to say, oh yeah, well, I'll show you. I'll not only do two records, I'll also make an EP as well with the Echo EP that I did at the same time, Project Echo. And then we went in, booked the studio time, same studio for drums, Armory Studios, and then to try and maximize the budgets between these two albums, we did a lot of the overdubs at Hipposonic and Home Studios. And I found myself immediately much more interested in doing the Devin Townsend Band record. I had songs like Storm and had songs like Deadhead. And Strapping had played at the 2002 Olympics. No, not the Olympics, the World Cup in South Korea. And while in South Korea, I became enamored again by this sense of the unknown, sense of being in this foreign country, the sense of validation that comes from being, while I was there, it's like it, we were very special. And we were being treated very special. And I loved that. Specifically at the time, I loved that sense of we are really important. And when I came back from Korea, I began to write these kind of romantic songs. These kind of bittersweet love songs that I wanted to adhere to that sort of ocean machine type structure. And because of the nature of Teria, where Teria was so overdubbed and so abstract, and as good of a record as Teria was, specifically in hindsight, at the time, um, strangely, again in hindsight, the criticisms that were levied at Teria was that it was too out there. It was too abstract. And it would be cool if I could get back to more of the basics. And so doing the recording for Accelerated Evolution became fascinating for me because I was trying to just do one vocal, maximum two vocal. You know, a big live drum sound, not active pickups. I had a Strat with passive pickups. It was a new group of people that the enthusiasm that they had to work with me was intoxicating. It was, I was 
I was special. And so the whole process of doing accelerated evolution was, it had a type of naivety and a type of momentum to it that I really craved. And then simultaneously doing strapping, I was almost convinced that I was doing it as a favor for those guys. There was a part of me that felt that any guilt that I had could be relinquished based on the fact that I was doing them a favor by doing this again. And I think on some level that was true within our relationship. And I know that they appreciated it, but it's foolish of me to assume that it wasn't transparent what I was doing, but there was a lesson there that I needed to learn as well, for sure. And what that was is that the throw that the emotional components of my work have is significant. And if you don't pay attention to what it is, I'm speaking to myself here about myself, to what it is that you are portraying publicly, projecting publicly, it can get away from you. So while I was working on accelerated evolution and being smitten by the whole thing, it's like a new romance in a sense, you know, there's a momentum to it. There's secrets to it. Strapping was tolerating that because what were the options? I think, although they had other things that they were all doing, everybody really wanted to be it. And everybody enjoyed that social thing as much as I did. All the drama aside and as much of my drama that I was imposing on that situation, it was fun to be out with that man. And me being a part of it, I mean, I contributed a lot to our social environment when we were out as well. But I just thought, okay, well, what would be the least amount of effort that I have to put in in order for this to become a record? The vehicle that Strapping had at that point was Century Media Records, who had all of a sudden become an actual label. Since Heavy is a really heavy thing in City even, by this point, Century Media had money and they had, they had influence. And I realized that halfway through the recording of the self-titled SYL record, that they were going to invest a significant amount of money into the touring, into the promotion. And by that point, I recognized, wow, I, I wish I had more interest in this. Because in a lot of ways, ironically, all these things that I was hoping for, for ocean machine and for my music in general was now being presented to me with strapping like that vehicle was available yet i just didn't have anything to say why didn't i have anything to say because i didn't follow my creative compulsion i followed my trip 
I followed what I thought people would want. And so when I listen back to SYL now, it's not a bad record, but it's not what I was feeling a compulsion to do. I'll tell you what my creative catalysts for that record were. Okay, what would a heavy metal record be? What would heavy metal artwork look like? What would heavy metal lyrics be? And while I would go to the studio and contribute that, and again, I wrote the majority of that record, but I wrote it in collaboration on a structural standpoint with the guys and was quote unquote, okay with other people contributing. So Jed contributed, you know, the song Relentless. And although I, of course, worked it in the ways that I would in order for me to be able to get behind it, like that was Jed, that and then Gene, who contributed and a lot of that song, Force Fed. I was still just removed from it. And so that offered an opportunity for strapping to evolve into something that was different from what it was that my intention was in the beginning. That I was still the figurehead for, I was still the lead singer for, yet the scene that was involved with the other guys in the band became a lot more a part of what strapping was all of a sudden than I was able to recognize was happening. I was so focused on accelerated evolution that I remember the effort that it would take for me to record the guitars was such that I said, hey, Jed, why don't you do all the guitars? Why don't you record all the guitars for this album? And he did, and he did a fantastic job. And then Gene, like, what would be some lyrics that we could use for this? And then for the production, Sean, just like, go for it. I'll go in there almost in a... Oh gosh, I don't even know what the best way to describe it. Like I was, I would show up and very generously dispense my ideas. And it wasn't, again, that it ended up being a bad record. It was a really cool record, but it was, it wasn't a strapping record to me. It was a version of strapping that, granted, some people prefer to all the records. And I can totally appreciate why. It's heavy and it's brutal and it's cool and it's tight and it's all these things. But it was almost like, it was almost like a parody of what it was that I felt strapping was perceived as. And it was almost a loophole. I almost felt that I could get away with doing this music that up to this point was City. I had been spiritually opposed to after whatever this alarm clock in my head went off during infinity or, or city or what have you. 
I could almost get away with doing it if I made it ironic. If I made strapping like a big, larger-than-life heavy metal record. So how this backfired for me was another example of, of something that I hesitate to speak about. But in light of what it is that I'm trying to achieve for myself creatively through doing these podcasts is worth bringing up. And that's the song Rape Song. So on the surface, that song is disturbing. But because of my absence, because of my feelings that I could get away with doing what I do in a ironic way, it was through that song that I recognized, no, that doesn't work for you. You can't do that. Rape song is anti-rape. Of course. Of course it's anti-rape. I wrote that song in France at a hotel room where on the TV was a graphic depiction of a rape scene. And I was so horrified by it due to a lot of things, including my past, including young sexual experiences for me, that my reaction to it was to make a song about what it would be like to kill a rapist. Yet, once the record was out, a female friend of mine said, I can't listen to that song. And I said, why? And he said, well, because you wrote a song about rape. I said, no, it was anti-rape. She says, that's not what I got from it. And then when I listened to it again, as opposed to being clear and articulate about what my intention was, I recognized how it could be interpreted as that. And I was just like, oh my God, no, 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 no. When I say I want to see you fucking dead, I'm talking about the rapist, not from the point of view of a rape, like a rapist, Jesus Christ. And it was when she told me that, that I was in the middle of the press cycle for that. And then when people started asking me questions about the lyrics, as they do, well, what do you mean by this? Devour the living, devour the dead. And I was like, oh, it's just heavy metal lyrics. They're like, well, you have a baby on the front with angel wings being ripped off. Are you anti-Christian? And then you have the song, Rape Song, and you, and I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, I was just thinking that I would write something brutal. This is not, this is not what I thought would happen. I thought, why can other bands get away with this? What's the difference? How can Slayer write songs that are, you know, Angel of Death or... And then the throwback from that has always seemed to be, oh, it's just horror lyrics. It's just, you know, it's just 
fantasy. And that really started me thinking about the nature of accountability within me. Ultimately now, when I think about the record and I think about the intention of those songs, I understand what I meant. Of course I didn't mean this is a song about rape. It's supposed to be anti-rape. That was the whole idea. I want you for your body was supposed to be, you know, this, the mind of this person that was, that was engaged in this. And then I want to see you fucking dead was supposed to be the reaction, how I feel towards somebody who would react like that or to feel like that. And then when I was talking to Travis Smith about doing the artwork for SYL, who had been such a great collaborator for Terrier because he was so sensitive. And he says, okay, well, what are we doing for SYL? And I'm like, make it gross, make it horrible, make it heavy metal, make it blood, make it angels dying. I don't know, make it heavy metal. And then in the middle of the press cycle, being asked about it, I realized the difference between me and maybe Tom Araya or a lyricist who would write something that their intention could be very easily misconstrued or, you know, maybe it's to do with people can view Slayer's lyrics as being anti-Semitic when they're clearly not or, or, or what have you. The difference is what their reasons for doing what they do is, I would imagine. And I recognized during the SYL cycle that my way of writing, my reasons for writing, are so intrinsically tied to my trip, going back to the beginning of this conversation, that, dude, you can write whatever you want, but unless you can deal with it, you got to be really careful. And... Oftentimes people say and have said to me, why can't you just do this? And my reaction to it is, I don't know, man. I just, I can't. And through SYL, I learned a lot, which ultimately led me to Alien. And one of the things that I recognized was the accountability through having that absence of mind while doing accelerated evolution led me not to be focused enough and then to have lyrically my work be not not controlled enough that I was then running the risk of hurting people whom I cared about based on me thinking, oh, I'll just be flippant with this. I realized during that period that whether or not this music means anything to the vast majority of people, which it doesn't, it means a lot to some people. And those people you need to be accountable to. I 
got asked on Twitter recently, how do other bands get away with not having to explain their lyrics? Somebody had asked me, why do Radiohead get away with not having to explain their lyrics, yet you feel like you have to? The answer again is, I don't know. But it affects me in ways that are negative. If something like that happens. So, alongside of the accountability of the SYL album, what also started happening is that we had this big push on that album. We had full-page ads. We had tour buses. We had all sorts of trappings of the music industry that I had clearly been pursuing. That was also now adhered to an album that I didn't feel comfortable with the lyrical content. Not because I thought my intention was wrong, but just because I didn't focus enough to the point where it could be easily misinterpreted. And I just didn't like the record that much. I thought it was cool. I thought it was a good heavy metal record. But it just wasn't... My heart wasn't in it. Yet here I was touring for two years on it. Every night, singing these songs. And thinking to myself... God, if I had really just applied myself, I could have been able to utilize all this machinery that is promoting this product towards something that I really feel strongly about. And on the other side of the spectrum, I had made this Accelerated Evolution album, which all my energies had gone towards. But romance and experiences in Korea and just this beautiful sense of like isolation and and a simple record without any overdubs with a new group of sort of naive and very kind-hearted musicians and that had been fueled by this sense of I'll show them quote-unquote with the strapping guys that ultimately I learned a lesson about, you know, the nature of the synergy between musicians and what it creates, regardless of who wrote it. And also, I had no time to tour it. Zero. The deal that I had made, ultimately at that point, Century Media was a vastly more powerful entity than Inside Out Records. And although Inside Out would have liked me to have put together a band and toured, which I tried on a couple of occasions. We did a couple of really rudimentary tours with Devin Townsend Band in an ice cream truck in winter, opening for Opeth and opening for Symphony X and then ultimately opening for Strapping Young Lad and Zimmer's Hole to try and keep the peace between this strange little family that we had created tour as well was called keep it in the family tour but there was just no time and then when we did go out i recognized pretty quickly that although it was a good group of musicians it wasn't a band it was me trying to prove a point with musicians even calling it accelerated evolution was an implication that I could put together something every bit as good 
with just people that I met quickly, which was not fair to the people that I had met, although it was cool experiences, and it wasn't fair to strapping, although it was just a product of the time, and I don't feel that there was anyone necessarily to blame. But this particular period resulted in two albums that I don't think either of them really hold up. I think that there's songs from each that are really cool. And I can incorporate in my repertoire now in a way that is really cool. For example, Aftermath, I think, is a really cool song. I think Deadhead is a really good song. I think Storm is a cool song, although it was super awkward because I mentioned my wife's name at the time. Um, I think that Bring on the Young had and has potential. And there's a couple of real bludgeoning songs on SYL that I think are cool. You know, Devour, Relentless, or... But both of these albums, they just don't... When I think back to them, I think of this dull sort of rusty red colored record and this dull kind of like silvery blue record. Both of them existing at a period of time for me that what it is that I was trying to achieve with the music was not only not particularly interesting to me recently, but also I think not only that, I don't think it was particularly interesting to me at the time. There are certain aspects of Accelerated Evolution that I was enjoying at the time. I enjoyed singing that one, and I enjoyed writing the simplistic riffs and having a new piece of gear that I could concoct that Project Echo, which was basically based on a Korg Triton that I still use, actually, that had a bunch of built-in sounds that I just found sort of clean and inspiring. And I used that keyboard in combination with, I forget the name of the program. It was a, a looping program at the time. I forget the name of it. And so the three songs on Project Echo, which ironically, I still have a vocal line in mind for that I've tried on several occasions to overdub, but I think that ship has sailed as well. But that Project Echo, Locate, Assignable, the names of those songs were just the names that were on the top of the keyboard. They were just names of functions on the keyboard. Echo was very closely tied to that Triton LE by Korg. I do remember, though, with Project Echo, thinking that's probably the freshest part of that period of work for me, with those three little dumb songs. Much more so than Accelerated Evolution, which was a simple, more blunted version of Ocean Machine in some ways, although there was a lot of emotional intensity on that record, which I think ultimately fueled it. I recorded a lot of Accelerated Evolution, or wrote it at least, while I was in Sweden, producing uh, a Soilwork album. And it had that aesthetic attached to it as well, that kind of you know, winter in Gothenburg. 
And then SYL, it was, there were certain aspects of it I thought were really cool. Again, I really thought that Aftermath was a cool song. But a lot of that record I don't remember. Even now, I had to listen to it the other day to remember it. Which doesn't bode well for my attachment to a piece of work in the long run. But I'll say again, a lot of people prefer that record to any of the strapping records. And I totally respect and appreciate that. I can only speak about it from my point of view. I think that the performances that all these musicians during this period uh, did. Jed, Byron, Gene, Mike, Dave, Ryan, Beave. I think the performances these guys did on those records were fantastic. All of them. Everybody worked their asses off. I think Sean Thingvold and everybody involved with the production of SYL. And, uh, you know, Sean and I, when we, we mixed uh, Accelerated Evolution, I think he did a great job as well. It's, it's not about any of that. It's just about where I was at and in hindsight what my intentions were. I think I could even go as far as saying that my hesitation to continue the podcasts, although to be fair I've been balls to the wall busy with these quarantine concerts, I would say that a lot of my hesitation to do it is just because I'm not interested in these records particularly much anymore. I think that I hesitate to say that because there's often, you know, the, the, the person who's responsible for these albums or the people who are responsible for these albums, their connection to it can often fly in the face of whether or not somebody who loves these records, um, you know, it's easy for people to say, hey, you know, I really like that record. It bums me out to hear that it didn't interest you as much. I have an emotional connection to that record. I feel that way about bands whom I love as well. I remember uh, earlier on in these podcasts speaking about Grotus. And their first album, Brown, meant a huge amount to me. And then when I followed them around, as I did, I remember they would always downplay that record. They'd say, hey, you know, we don't really enjoy that record as much. And it would bum me out because I almost felt like it was insulting to the amount of emotional energy I had invested in those records. And I think I hesitate to talk about some of these albums that don't mean as much to me now in hindsight. Based on that, I don't want people to feel like I'm being disparaging to something that they have an emotional connection to. But the function of these podcasts, for me, is to not only describe the trajectory in which the work has taken and has gotten me to this point for two reasons. One, to offer some insight or, or productive uh, psychological help for other musicians dealing with similar kind of obstacles. But it also helps me understand where I'm at now. I feel that this particular period of my work, SYL, Accelerated Evolution, was very important for me because it allowed me to learn some valuable lessons, make some good music, 
and then not repeat those patterns at least in the same way again fundamentally to that lesson was dude don't do two records simultaneously as much as you had a certain amount of bravado that went into it telling yourself i'll show the label too that i can do two things at once i'll show the bands that i'm capable of it i'm superman you've forgotten clearly and then coming out the other side and just being like wow neither of them ended up being really really what i wanted accelerated evolution maybe nine or tenfold was more so what i wanted but that was because i only had the energy for one record at a time and to split that resulted in a lopsided power structure in terms of my creative energies being divided but also neither of them being exactly what it was that i feel records should be records are documents records are like an essay it's like what i learned at summer camp <laughs> so if i do it correctly somebody asked me the other day as well i said do you when you listen back to your records do you feel proud of them and when i listen back to work that i've done the only things that i feel i recognize are whether or not it accurately summarized that particular period and i guess one could argue that even a record like physicist where the depression shone through that work so much to me one could argue that that's an accurate representation of that time so maybe i need to find new words for this as well my connection to the records is whether or not i feel like i accurately captured the overarching theme of that period and to make a statement that is not full force means that while you may have captured the mindset the overarching theme is is much more significant to that than that to me and so my criticisms of the work are more to do with the fact that i i i get the sense that i didn't honor it enough and again this is falling short because how can you do more than you're capable of every one of these records i was at maximum capacity in terms of intellectually or or spiritually or or technologically it's not like i felt i could have worked harder considering those those periods and you know who i was back then but it's now moving forward like everything in my life it's like okay well what can you learn about that so that moving into your next stage of creative identity you can be more true to that overarching theme the same theme that i've been commenting for much of this podcast that i don't know how to articulate when i look back on it my my analysis of these albums are to do with a true yearning 
to try and honor these things with, with a full heart. So if that means looking back and saying, okay, well, the production snare drum wasn't quite right, or you didn't know enough about personal accountability lyrically, or while you were singing Accelerated Evolution, you wanted to have such a, a full voice, yet you were smoking all sorts of dope still. And dope just really affects your voice. So as much as your intention was to do that, the ways in which that intention fell short in hindsight was that. And so continuing on with this podcast, hate seeing that word, podcast, podcast, podcast. Continuing on with it, my recognition now is not that my analysis of the past work is based in self-absorption. It's based in trying to analyze the methodology in which I have at my disposal to express something that I feel compelled to express for the sake of wanting to honor it, for the sake of me feeling it's beautiful, for the, th for the sake of me feeling that my connection to my own humanity can come out through music and I can share that with others. In which ways has the past work with the value of hindsight not been accurate enough so that it holds up? And I think that is also easily viewed as being self-critical to the point where you are, you know, uh, insecure. But I don't think I'm insecure at all, at least about art. I don't. I feel that... I feel that, of course, I'm insecure as a person. Of course. And of course I'm still insecure as an artist. Let's be fair. Of course you are. So what do I mean by, I, by that? By I don't feel insecure. I feel that there's a difference between being insecure versus refining your process. And if I was so insecure, if I was as insecure about the work as perhaps this um, talk and all these podcasts that I've done might imply, there's no way I could even get a record out. There's no way. You have to have a baseline of self-assuredness just to be a visible artist. Otherwise, it will eat you alive. There's no way. So my, my critical nature, based on listening back to this work, has much more to do with wanting to get it right. Or not even get it right. Wanting to refine it so that my expression of musical gratitude can be consistently refined at the point where when you look back at it, you just think, okay, so what was your problem with the lyrical aspects of empath, for example? Value of hindsight. 
Well, I know in hindsight that that record was important for me because it acted as a, a transition between where I was and where I hoped to go. And to do that, I needed to lay out my past stylistically and then analyze my relationship to each part so I could deal with the fear. The fear of being in connection to the heavy music with a song like Hear Me or Singularity. But by doing that, I recognize as well that when I listen to it now, I'm in the way. When I listen to it, I'm in the way. The word I. And so moving forward with that awareness of where I was on the last essay, quote unquote, the work comes down to now, how do you refine that? How do you find a way to take that same intention that has been there since the beginning and then remove the obstacles that each step of your process allows you to see clearly? That doesn't mean that those albums are not significant to me. It doesn't mean that I think they're bad. It just means that they are part of a ladder. And in order to get my footing, I need to understand where I was prior. So Accelerated Evolution and SYL, they were like, two teenage brothers you know one of them needed to learn about accountability and the other one lead, needed to learn to stand up for itself and I think if I look at those records from a from an accuracy point of view yeah they couldn't have been anything other than what they are they couldn't sound any different than what they are. So, in that sense, they're quote-unquote perfect. But, in light of what it is that I hope to achieve next, what can I learn from them? We did videos for Relentless. We did videos for think storm it was just just not particularly strong videos but this started a whole new pathway for strapping it started a whole new avenue and a whole new fan base because it became a lot more tough the vibe that Jed Byron and Gene were able to contribute to strapping was something that I had problems wielding. I I just I'm not a I'm not a I don't know what's the best way to describe it without sounding like saying they are which is not what I'm trying to say. But they all came from like a different background than me. You know, they all came from something that was a lot more, let's say, real than I did. I came from a, a fairly protected background. And then all those guys, they came from something that 
It's just a little bit more real, I guess. And I guess I just enjoyed being involved with that because it made me felt protected. It made me feel like I could get away with a lot just because I was being backed by these guys. But again, through the accountability of that record, I recognized that if you're the singer of it, if you're the front man of it, then you represent it. And I think I fell into a pattern of... What's the best way for me to, to describe this? I had a good friend that once asked me if I thought I was a poser. And I remember thinking, well, I don't know about that. Let me think about it. And then upon really thinking about it, I came back and I said, I think you're right. I think I'm posing. I think I'm pretending I'm tough. And when I speak about humiliation, like I did in the very beginning of this, again, I think there's a distinction to be made between healthy humiliation and unhealthy humiliation. Unhealthy being, you know, maybe somebody takes a, a lewd photo or, or video and, and puts it up without your, your permission and then you are humiliated publicly by the hand of somebody who is just being cruel to you. And then I think there's a humiliation that comes from a lesson that you need to learn that you don't realize you are representing. Like, I didn't realize that my need for acceptance would come to me by me pretending that I was something that I wasn't. And that type of humiliation, I think, is important. I think it's important for a number of reasons. It's important because if your objective is to not do that, there's no quicker way to learn a lesson than by seeing yourself do it. You're just like, oh, shit. <laughs> We're going to have to learn from that one because that's embarrassing. And I guess the second thing about that is the fastest way out is through. So I would rather know the ways in which my methods as a person, as an artist, whatever, are affecting me negatively than just going along blindly. And then having that revealed to me at a time where I'm at that point no longer capable of change. You know, I'm fortunate in so many ways with my career that it has never really been massive. Could you imagine? Could I imagine having gone through some of these things like Christ complexes and, you know, pretending I was tough and, and all these things. And then having that become something that me and my family are financially dependent on, at that point, what do you do? I would imagine that at that point, you have a choice of either just cashing your chips in or just with all strength in your being, 
trying to perpetuate that myth to the point where you're just continuously thinking that you're a fraud. You know, I, I've been asked on a couple of occasions to be an actor and I just, number one, I just don't enjoy the process or the art for me. But number two, with this personality that I have that has resulted in not being able to just write heavy metal lyrics without feeling like I, I'm not accountable for them. Not being able to watch horror movies without it sticking with me. Not being able to do any number of things. I just don't think that I could be an actor and then progress as a person. I'm talking about with my personality because I just think I'd get lost in it. I think I would get lost in the role. And so where does that come from? Ultimately, looking at this sixth podcast for what it is. Where does your intention lie? Do you make this music? Do you talk about yourself? Do you do these things because of some sense of covert narcissism, some narcissism, some sense that you are so vastly important that your story is worth telling? Or do you do it because altruistically you're trying to help others? Or do you do it, and this is perhaps more where I'm at because I just want to know myself and this is the vehicle that I have in order to do that yes it's public yes there's a certain amount of responsibility that I feel for continuing and trying to use my work as a, uh, a tether in some way. Based on perhaps feeling like you can't just put out things like you have in the past with the personality that you have without providing some sort of conclusion for it. Or who, who knows? Maybe I'm just full of shit. Maybe that's it. Maybe I'll find at the end of this, maybe I'll find that what it really means to achieve the thing that I'm trying to achieve is to not do it at all. That's, that's a frightening thought and has been for years that perhaps everything that I've needed to say, I've already said. So everything that I say now is just me stringing together pretty words in hopes that it alludes to something that I've already said in a way that concludes it with some sort of grace and some sort of uh, responsible manner. And that if I get to the point where I finally have found who I am unequivocally, in the moment it will also come hand in hand with 
Well, you don't need to say anything about it then. That's it. And that would be difficult because you got to make a living. <laughs> but I also feel that it's worth investigating whether or not your intentions are purely driven by fear of going broke. Because that happened when I was a teen as well. You know, our family went bankrupt. And so how much of that is a motivating factor? How much of the relentless productivity? And then I think back to the whole life coaching thing. I think to all these people who are doing this sort of work and then monetizing it. It's, it's intention is lost in the monetization. I feel. So where does that leave you? How do you say, how do you express, how do you provide in the name of something that you think is just universally perfect and brilliant, yet not, not sully it with your own trip? And then how do you maintain an organization that requires funds in order for its whole nature just to keep going so here's my answer is just stop thinking about it and that's a hard thing for somebody who has made a habit of thinking about thinking not even a habit almost made a career out of thinking about thinking so yes I'm back doing these podcasts why well because I think there's something for me to learn about just sitting with it sitting with all of this sitting with the truth of it sitting with the reality of how it makes you feel in hindsight and then maybe just by talking through it the analysis that comes from just laying it out like this will answer the questions in a way that are a lot more obvious than perhaps I've given them any credit for. Perhaps just by getting it out of your system, you realize that there's a lot of folly to it. There's a lot of childish things involved with childish reactions. And at that point, yeah, maybe just by getting it out of your system, it's out of your system. And then whatever happens next is just something that isn't an intellectual process. It's just, oh, clearly this is what you do. Yeah. And any hang up that I may have had in the past about, well, I wonder what people are going to think about this. What about the people that only like this one record of mine? You know, am I that tied to other people's opinions of what I've done in the past that I'm willing to incorporate their expectations on what should just be a natural progression of my work? And if the answer to that is yes, well, then you've still got a lot of work to do, man. But thankfully, I feel that fatigue plays a large role in what happens next as well, where you're just sick of this. You're sick of yourself. You're sick of your trip. You're sick of your own process. You're sick of your own thing. And it's not 
a sickness that is rooted in self-loathing. It's the opposite. It's I've gotten to the point where I care enough about myself that when I start going down these avenues, I can say to myself, oh, Deb, just don't do that, man. It's all good, man. Yeah, but what are other people going to think? That doesn't matter. Yeah, but what about this? What if we go broke? You won't go broke. What if, but what if, what if I go back out and no one cares? What if I can't sing? What if the voice doesn't work? You know, what if people who like me when I'm heavy don't think I'm heavy? Maybe I'll make something that's super mellow and people will, you know, not like it. Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen, Dev. You're going to make both because you're not just one thing. And I think this is the conclusion that looking at this objectively will bring you. Is that need, perhaps, on my front to think that my identity is so black and white that I can summarize it with a thing. I'm the guy that wears only natural fibers. That's my identity. In the face of other people who seem to clearly have such a cut and dried identity, what should I wear? What should I bring to the table? Oh, I'm the guy that doesn't know math. I'm the guy that's not as smart as that guy. I'm the musician that is not as capable of sight reading as that person. So your identity ends up getting wrapped up in all this analysis to the point where you're able to not see yourself with such clarity that your ability to see yourself is lost in a sea of self-pity. You know, I think that the most tangible progress that I've ever made in any walk of life has come for me when I finally gotten to the point where I'm just so sick of it. I'm so sick of my own self-talk. I'm so sick of my, my self-worrying and pity that I'm just like, oh, fuck it. And sometimes what it takes for that to become clear is trauma. All these processes that we, we find ourselves so embroiled in pale in significance when you really have to deal with life. You know, the what ifs. What if I can't get the perfect cab sim? But then something happens. I don't know, like a global pandemic. Where all of a sudden these things just seem to not be as important. Well, it's not even seem to not be as important. They're not as important. It just takes time and circumstance for you to see it for what it is. And at that point, and I'm sure you've experienced a similar thing, you recognize how much effort you've put into something that was just because you were bored. Why was I obsessing about this person? Why was I obsessing about this sound? Why was I obsessing about this situation? And it seems to be, unfortunately, you just didn't have anything better to do. You know, there was nothing that was more important in your life than that problem. So you would be hard-pressed to get it out of your mind. I think this is where the process of meditation as an art becomes very important as well, because it's 
practicing getting out of your mind, practicing letting these obsessive thoughts just be transient. And again, I am not a master at it by any stretch of the imagination, but I do find that the more that I do it, the more that I recognize the place in which these things that I have placed so much significance on in my life truly need to lie. And so the podcasts are a way for me, maybe, to just talk about the past to the point where I just get so sick of it that when I start writing again, it's of no interest to me. And a lot of times when you're deep into your trip, it's easy to think that it's clear how important this is. But you lay it out. Like I had mentioned, the whole process of empath was based on just lay it all out. Analyze how you feel about each and every one of these aspects of your creative identity. And then how do you feel about it? And I think that if I had come out of this feeling like, oh, this is great. It's the me show starring me. And everybody should pay attention because it's of that much importance. I think there would be a problem. But that's not what I'm coming out of it as. I'm coming out of it as, oh God, we're only on SYL and AE. Shit, we've got another 15 records to do. By the time this whole series is over, I think the last thing in the world that's going to be of any interest for me to write about is going to be this shit. Clearly. And maybe to go back to the artistic um, problem that occurs in writer's block, maybe writer's block is actually not a block but an intermission. And during that intermission, the reason why there's nothing coming out of you is because the things in which you are learning, you're still in the process of learning. So to try and rush that would be like cooking a pie and then eating it directly out of the oven as opposed to just letting it sit for five minutes. Or picking an avocado and then assuming that because it's off the branch, clearly it's time to eat. I think that writer's block is better viewed as a period in which all these things that we're learning and clearly the things that we learn during quarantine are yet to be absorbed and, and put into action. Like, who knows what happens after this? No one knows. That's the root of this problem for most of us, is that we're used to having some sense of control over our environment. And to be thrust into a situation where not only do we not have control over it, but we have no information either. And the information that we do get, it's very difficult for us to trust any of it Everybody's got a different opinion. And there's 400 websites telling us different things every day. So on some level, we're also now having to deal with personal accountability. 
in absence of all this, and with my sanity and family and job and future at stake, what choices do I make? It's up to me. And that's a crazy place to be. And I can draw a conclusion to the SYL record. And I can draw a conclusion to the AE record. Or an analogy or one of these words. Because that's exactly what I felt as a result of that. It's uncomfortable to have to make up your own mind about things that are very important. It's uncomfortable because then if it fucks up and if we're wrong, there's no one to blame but us. And a lot of people don't want to be put in that position. They would rather do nothing than put themselves in a position where they fuck up. Because the criticisms that get levied at you as a result of fucking up, we've been trained as a society to stave off at all costs. You know, it's more important for us to do nothing and save face than to try something and fail. But I'll tell you, in my experience, the single most important artistic motivator that I have encountered, whether or not it's just to do with an inflated self of importance or whatever, is by fucking up. So... It's the end of this podcast. I encourage you to try. And if you do fuck up, I encourage you to at least be conscious enough of why you fucked up to try not to do it again. This is Devin Townsend saying stuff. Dev out. <laughs>